Well, good morning. As, uh, as Dave just read, we will be in 1 John chapter 5 this morning, and uh, we'll just be covering one verse. So as you make your way there in your Bible or on your phone or tablet or whatever it might be, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, growing up. When I was a kid growing up in uh, Southeast Texas, I played a lot of soccer, which is kind of rare uh, in Texas, but I played about 10 years of soccer, and I was on the same team uh, all 10 years, and we were called the Wild Men. And, uh, and so the Wild Men, what was really interesting about us as a team is that uh, we were composed of about eight or nine guys that were on the same team the entire time. And so our entire soccer career, uh, if you will, we were all together, uh, which was really, uh, really interesting. And, uh, and so on that team were a couple of guys named Mark and Justin. Mark and Justin. And what was interesting about Mark and Justin is that they were brothers. Not just brothers, they were twins. Not just twins, but they were actually identical twins. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, uh, the idea of identical twins was magical, right? They're like mystical creatures, like leprechauns or unicorns or something like that. And, uh, and so uh, we loved having these, uh, these two brothers, Mark and Justin, uh, on, our, uh, on our team. And so anytime we would play uh, other teams, because this is such a magical event that you're getting to see identical twins, we would have people on the other team that would kind of pull us aside at halftime or before the game started, and they would say, are they twins? To which we reply, no, they're not even related. And, uh, and so already sarcastic as a, uh, as a young child. And, uh, and so each year we would generally have one or two new guys on, uh, on the team. There'd be a little bit of turnover. And, uh, and for the first few weeks, those guys would have a horrible time trying to, to, to tell Mark and Justin uh, apart. But for those of us who had known them for years, there was no question I could see either of them and instantly, immediately know whether or not that was Mark or Justin. In fact, this week, this very week, uh, I decided to look them up on the, uh, the internet. And, uh, and so I looked them up on the internet. I have not seen either of them since graduating high school 24 years ago. And I saw pictures of them and I could still tell them apart. Uh, because even though they are physically similar, even though they are genetically similar, they are also dissimilar in a, uh, a number of ways. The, 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 and so as I, I was trying to think through what are some of the, the ways that Mark and Justin are, uh, are different, uh, there were a number of different clues. Physically, uh, they, they looked very, very similar. Again, they're called identical twins, but there were also some differences in, in their eyes in particular. And in the, uh, the timbre of their voice. It's not like one of them spoke on helium or something like that. But there was a, uh, one of them did have a slightly uh, deeper voice. On a more serious note, one of them, Mark, really, really loved Saved by the Bell. And he loved Saved by the Bell trivia. I know that because I also love Saved by the Bell. Don't judge me. I'm not proud of my past, but I want to be honest about it. And so he and I, and, and in school... Uh, in high school, would kind of try to stump each other. We would walk up to each other and ask random questions about Zach and AC and Bayside and all that. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. It's not an important show. But, uh, but anyway, we really loved uh, Saved by the Bell. Another difference between the two was that uh, Justin was actually our class valedictorian. 
whereas Mark graduated like number three in our class of 600. So he was a real dummy. And, uh, and so probably because he was too busy watching Saved by the Bell and playing stupid trivia games with me instead of uh, studying chemistry or Latin or whatever it might be. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, he uh, didn't do as well in school, but he graduated number three. Uh, so uh, the reason I mention this is because uh, on first glance that these two brothers looked identical. Uh, and, and if you didn't really know them, they appeared to be uh, almost the exact same. But the more that you knew them, the easier it was to tell them apart. Any of you who maybe are a twin or have a twin or know twins probably know uh, how to tell them apart. For you, you're not stumped. If your kids are twins, eventually there is a point at which you're no longer stumped whenever you see them uh, that uh, you're e easily able to instantly tell them apart. Well, that's kind of what John is doing in this particular letter. He's giving us these signs. He's giving us these clues. He's giving us what we've called tests to distinguish, not, to distinguish not one brother from another brother, but instead true brothers, true Christians from false brothers, from pretenders, from pseudo-Christians. And so as we've seen over the past maybe seven months or so as we've been in uh, 1 John, uh, there are these false teachers that had risen within the context uh, of the first century church, within the context of the church to, to which uh, John is writing. And, and these false teachers had ultimately left the church and took many uh, with them. And, and in the wake of their departure, there are these questions. Who, who is really saved? Is it those who have gone out from the church or is it those who have remained? How do you distinguish the sons of God from these false teachers, from these heretics? They look pretty similar. They use similar expressions. The false teachers and the true Christians would have both said that they believe in God. They would have both said that they believe in Jesus. They would have both mentioned the gospel. They would have both talked about life and salvation and so forth. So how do you tell who is who? Well, John gives us a series of tests, these litmus tests to help distinguish sheep from wolves. In particular, as we've seen, he gives a theological test. He gives a, a, a social or relational test and he gives a moral test. As we've seen over the past uh, seven months or so, Christians are identified by certain theological beliefs, by their relationship to each other, that's the relational or social test, and also by their disposition to sin, that's the moral test. We confess certain things, we believe certain things, we think certain things, we grow in our desire to put sin to death, and we grow in our love for one another as brothers and sisters. That's what we're talking about in 1 John. So let's pray, and then we're gonna see how our passage is actually going to help us further develop this, uh, this theme. I ask you first just to pray for uh, yourself. Even as Tim prayed, um, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And so uh, we can't understand the word, we can't appreciate the word, we can't embrace the word, we can't believe the word, apart from the work of the Spirit. So would you pray that the Spirit would give you an undivided mind and heart this morning? And would you pray that same prayer for those around you, whether you know them or not, whether they are your husband or wife or a child or complete strangers? And then lastly, would you pray for me, for boldness and faithfulness, 
So Father, we ask for your help. We confess that uh, we are in need of your spirit this morning to help us to see the glory of, uh, of your word and the glory of your son. And so uh, we pray what the psalmist prays, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things in your word and unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so we pray all this with hope and expectation in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at 1 John 5, 1, which says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And we'll begin with that first phrase there, which says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. A a minute ago, we mentioned the historical and the literary context of the book, and these uh, these three litmus tests that John gives. Uh, We'll see aspects of both the, the theological and also the social or relational test this morning, but let's start with the theological test. One of the marks of the children of God, one of the ways to distinguish the false teachers from the true believers is that uh, the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, confess certain truths. John has already mentioned multiple examples of these throughout uh, 1 John. For example, 1 John 2, 22 through 23, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Or 1 John 2, uh, 4, 2 through 3, by, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already in 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I mention all of these because we need to avoid reading any of these uh, confessions in isolation, as if John means for any one of them to suffice uh, individually. In other words, it isn't enough to merely confess that Jesus is the Christ but to deny that he's the son of God or to deny that he's come in the flesh. They're a package deal. They go uh, together. We shouldn't read one and confess one and believe one to the neglect of the other. So here in chapter five, we're again again reminded of the importance of confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Let's work through what that means beginning with the word Christ. What does the word Christ mean? Well, it's not Jesus' last name, like his parents are Joseph and Mary Christ. That's not what we mean. The word Christ is not a name, it is a title. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which itself is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah. So when we use the word Christ or the word Messiah, those mean the exact same thing. Those are just anglicized or Englished ways of, uh, of pronouncing the, uh, the Greek Christos or the Hebrew Mashiach. But what do those words actually mean? All we've done is just simply replicated the sound. We haven't actually translated them. What do Mashiach and Christos actually mean? Well, they mean one who is anointed. Not just any anointed, but notice it's the anointed. Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So when we read that we are to believe that Jesus is the Christ, it means that Jesus is the anointed. Well, that just backs up the question even further. What does that mean? What does it mean to be anointed? Well, in the Old Testament, anointing with oil 
plays a very significant role in regards to setting apart people for particular offices within the nation of Israel. In particular, you would set apart by anointing prophets and priests and king, uh, kings. All of them were anointed with oil, and Christ is actually going to fulfill all three offices, all three functions. He's the prophet who's greater than Moses. He's the greatest prophet. Not only that, but he is also a priest, not like the the Levitical priesthood, but a priest like Melchizedek, this greater priesthood. He's also a king. He's a king like Solomon and like David, but a king even greater than Solomon and uh, David. And this final office, that of the office of king, is particularly relevant because that is the way that the word Christ typically, typically functions within the New Testament. When we read or when we say or when we confess or when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we primarily mean that Jesus is the king. That's what it means. Every time you read Jesus Christ, you should think Jesus the king or king Jesus. That's what that word means. So what king? What does it mean that he is the king? Well, he's the king of Israel. He's the son of David, but not just the king of Israel. Indeed, he's the king of the entire world. The king whose birth was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3. If you remember the story from Genesis 3, uh, there is the the fall of mankind. There's the introduction of sin uh, through uh, uh, Adam and Eve. And, uh, And then there is a curse that is leveled on Adam and Eve and on creation and on the serpent. And part of that curse is that God promises that even though the serpent would bite the heel of the woman's offspring... That son, that offspring would one day crush the head of the serpent. Tim sometimes uh, talks about this and uses this illustration in membership class and it always gives me the giggles. As Michael Scott from the office once asked, which is more serious, a foot injury or a head injury? All right, you know the answer to that, a head injury, obviously. So even though this offspring's heel is struck metaphorically, he crushes the head of the serpent. That's what Christ does. That's what King Jesus does in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He is uh, 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 destroying, he's crushing the head of the serpent. In doing so, this king, this son, he conquers the enemy. He reverses the curse of Genesis 3. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. He's the prophesied, he's the promised king. That's what we mean whenever we confess that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king, not just the king of Israel, but yes and amen, he is the king of Israel, but he is also the king of the entire world, which means that he has a kingdom. A king without a kingdom doesn't mean anything, so Jesus has a kingdom. So what is the kingdom? Well, imagine a world with no effects of Genesis 3, no effects of the fall. There's no sin There's no heresy, there's no natural disasters, there's no disease, there's no death, there's no tornadoes like hit Nashville, there's no coronavirus. Now with that in mind, I want you to think back on the life and ministry of Christ. For three years in his public ministry, what does he do? He forgives sin, he teaches truth, he calms the raging sea, he heals uh, diseases, he defeats death. Lest you miss that significance, Let me repeat again what the kingdom is like. I said, imagine a world with no sin. What does Jesus do? He forgives sin. Imagine a world with no idolatrous heresy. What does Jesus do? 
He teaches truth and he combats theological error. Imagine a world with no natural disasters. Jesus calms the storm and he walks on the water. Imagine a world with no famine. Jesus feeds the multitude. Imagine a world with no disease. Jesus gives sight to the blind and causes the lame to walk and heals the woman with a lifetime of ailments. Imagine a world with no death. Jesus raises Lazarus and others and he himself is raised from the dead. In other words, the signs, the miracles of Jesus aren't just neat magic tricks. He's not like an ancient David Blaine going around doing these magic tricks to impress his friends or pick up girls at a party or something like that. The signs are just that, they're signs. And those signs signify something. What do they signify? They signify that he is the king and that he is ushering in the kingdom of God and putting the world to rights. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we mean that he is the king, the king of Israel, but more than that, the king of the world, who has inaugurated the kingdom of God, which will ultimately conquer all of God's enemies. By the way, this is the gospel. If you wanna know what the gospel is, the gospel is the message of the kingdom. The gospel isn't just a message of how you individually are made right with God, but rather how all of creation is made right. How you are made right with God is super important. I'm not denying that, I'm not neglecting that. I'm saying that in addition to this importance, there is also the importance of recognizing how God is putting the world to rights. He's reconciling the world. Look at Matthew 9, 35. Matthew 9, 35 says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, notice this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Notice that phrase, gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the message of the gospel, which is good news. So how is this good news? How is this message, the message of the kingdom, how is that good news? news. Well, because it means that in Christ, in King Jesus, all of God's enemies will be conquered. He will return. He will consummate. He will realize. He will finalize the kingdom, which has already uh, begun. The fall will be completely reversed. There is coming a day when all that is sad will become untrue. That's why in Revelation, when King Jesus returns, we read of another garden where there are no tears, There's no mourning, there's no death, nor anything accursed. A kingdom that's fully consummated, fully realized for eternity, all of God's enemies are judged and the world is put to right. Now that's really bad news for those who persist in rebellion against the king. If you're an enemy of the king, then his victory over his enemies, including you, is a warning That's bad news, that's judgment, that's condemnation, that is eternal wrath and suffering. But it's good news for those who repent, who surrender and subsequently love and serve the king because it means that not only are God's enemies conquered but our enemies as well. Because now that we are in God's family, now that we are in God's kingdom as citizens of the kingdom of God, his enemies are now our enemies enemies. So there will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. The head of the serpent will be fully and finally crushed. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we aren't just giving some historical fact. 
We're not reciting a name or a title independent of itself without any sort of meaning. We are confessing in that moment, we're confessing eschatological hope that this king will return and make all things new. Listen to what John Calvin writes about this. He says, to believe that he is the Christ is to hope from him all those things which have been promised as to the Messiah. Nor is the title Christ given him here without reason, for it designates the office to which he was appointed by the Father. As under the law, full restoration of all things, righteousness and happiness, were promised through the Messiah, so at this day the whole of this is more clearly set forth in the gospel. Then Jesus cannot be received as Christ except salvation be sought from him, since for this end he was sent by the Father and is daily offered to us. So when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we confess that he is king and thus he is worthy, worthy of our attention, worthy of our affection, worthy of our submission, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our hope, worthy of our worship. Let's keep going to the next phrase. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You might sum up the entire book of 1 John uh, by asking this question, how do you know that you are born of God. All the various litmus tests that we've already mentioned are connected to this imagery of being born of God, this imagery of birth. We see that in the moral test, 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We see it also in the social relational test, the, uh, the relationship between this social test of love and that of being born of God. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so our passage this morning connects being born of God to the theological test of confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Again, these three tests are different ways, different perspectives of answering this one question. Who are the sons and daughters of God? Who has been born of God? So being born of God is a major motif of the book of 1 John, which makes sense because it's also, by the way, a major motif, a major theme of the gospel that bears John's name as well. In chapter three of the gospel of John, Jesus is speaking to a Pharisee a leader of the Jews, and that Pharisee is named Nicodemus. Nicodemus goes to him at night. They're having a conversation, and Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom, there's that word again, kingdom. You can go and look it up in John chapter three. In order to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus is kind of daft. He's kind of dull, as most of the characters that Jesus encounters uh, in the gospels are. And so Nicodemus asks him this question. He said, how can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? To which Jesus responds, come on, man, that's gross, right? I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual rebirth. Maybe you've heard it said before that everyone is God's children. We're all God's children. We sing it in We Are the World or whatever the songs are. That's kind of our cultural idea is that everyone's a child of God. It's in our songs. It's on our bumper stickers uh, and so forth. We're all a part of God's big family, Buddhists and Mormons and Hindus and Muslims and uh, atheists and Christians. Again, that idea is very prevalent in our culture. It is not prevalent in Scripture. In fact, it's antithetical to to Scripture. We aren't all children of God. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. 
Paul's writing and he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, look at this next phrase, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children, not of God, but children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We aren't by nature children of God. We are sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath. We are by nature children of the world, children of the flesh, children of the enemy, children of the serpent from Genesis 3. It's only by grace that we become children of God. And scripture uses two complementary images for how this is accomplished to describe this transition from going from being children of the world, children of the enemy, to being children of God. Paul uh, most often uses the imagery of adoption, that we are adopted by God into his family. On the other hand, John uses the image of regeneration. We are born again, we are reborn, we are born of God well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we've been given a new nature, a new nature consisting of new affections, new desires, and new loves. Now, I want you to notice something. Notice the phrase there, has been born. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In English, it's easier to miss this nuance, but in Greek, there's something really interesting happening in this passage. John uses what is called a perfect tense, which doesn't mean it's the best of all the tenses. Uh, It means it refers to a completed action with ongoing results in the present. Completed action with ongoing results in the present. I don't say this in order to bore you with a Koine Greek grammar lesson, but because there is, if you understand this, a verbal treasure to be found here. In particular, there is a complete reversal of something that you probably or may at least have always believed and thought to be true. When I was growing up, there were lots of things that I believed that I thought that weren't true. I believe that touching frogs would give you warts. That's not actually true. There's no evidence for that. I believe, we've talked about this before, uh, I believe if you crossed your eyes that they would stay that way, right? If you step on a crack, it will what? Break your mother's back. That doesn't happen. I believe if you died in your dreams, then you died in real life. I've died in my dreams before. I believe that quicksand and lava were gonna be daily dangers for adults, all right? There's all kinds of things that I believed when I was a kid that aren't true. I also believed a number of things about Christianity growing up in the church, even though I wasn't regenerate. Growing up in the church, I believed a number of things about Christianity that were false. One of them was this line that you've probably heard and maybe you even believe. It was this line in particular, if you believe you will be born again. Has anyone ever heard that? If you believe, you will be born again. Well, that phrase isn't true. Let me say that again. The phrase, if you believe, you will be born again, is wrong. What's the problem with that phrase? The problem is it makes believing the cause and being born again the effect. It makes believing the cause, if you do this, believe, then this will happen. You will be born again. It makes believing the cause and being born again the effect, whereas in reality, the opposite is true. Think back to what I said about the perfect tense. It refers to a completed action with ongoing results. 
So you have been born of God. That's the completed action. That's the cause. And what's the effect? You believe. Check out this quote by uh, John Stott. He says, the combination of present tense believes and perfect tense has been born is important. It shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we became and remain God's children. So rather than saying, if you believe, you will be born again, we should say, if you are born again, you will believe. In other words, regeneration precedes belief. Regeneration precedes your faith. Regeneration, being born again, comes first. Now that doesn't mean that you're born again and then months or years later you eventually believe. It's instantaneous. The moment that you're born again, you believe and yet the order is important, it's significant. It's kind of like striking a match. The moment that you strike a match, there is light and there is heat. The light and heat are instantaneous, immediate results or effects of striking the match. But logically, you have to strike the match before you get the light and the heat. That's like regeneration and belief. The moment that your heart is born again, you believe. There is no delay, and yet regeneration is the cause. And it's important that we not mix up that order. Regeneration causes faith. There are times when it's super important that we distinguish cause from effect. For instance, imagine a scenario involving divorce. Imagine that Mickey divorces Minnie and Minnie begins to date uh, other mice or whatever, right? It matters which one comes first, right? Did Mickey actually divorce her first or did she start dating other mice first, right? Or imagine that Zach shoots a guy. It's not hard to imagine, it's gonna happen. So Zach shoots a guy because he shot at Zach. That's a totally different scenario than some guy shoots at Zach because Zach shot him. Or Carl slaps Tim because Tim slaps Carl. That's really different than Tim slapped Carl because Carl slapped him. In which case is Carl's slap justified? Well, in neither. Carl's a lot bigger, right? He's bigger and stronger. Tim wouldn't survive, but... You get the point. The order is significance. Which one is the cause and which one is the effect is the effect is significant. Likewise, in this passage, when it comes to regeneration and faith, the order of believing and being born again is significant. How so? Because it makes salvation entirely a work of God. Think about this for a second. If you reverse this, you take a little bit of credit for your salvation. It means that God's love for you is reactive. It's responsive versus initiating versus proactive. It makes salvation entirely a work of God when you recognize that the only reason you believed is because God enabled you to believe by regeneration. If you believe that your belief precedes or causes your regeneration, then you believe that God's love is reactive and you believe that your will is ultimately sovereign in your salvation. But remember what we said earlier about regeneration, that it involves giving of a new nature with new loves and new desires, a new will, if you will. The old will, the old man, the flesh hates God. 
hates his word, hates his son. Go back and look at John 3 again, and you'll notice that it says that everyone hates the light. That is our natural disposition. The old will hates God. So only a new will, only a new heart, only a new nature will believe. Jesus stands and says, if only you will believe upon me, you will be saved. And yet every single one of us in the flesh responds to that by rejecting, by resisting him. Every single human heart that has ever lived in and of itself resists the message of the gospel. So it takes the work of regeneration to overcome our innate resistance and make us willing to believe. So the reason that this order is really significant and really important for us to recognize is, it, is because it completely undercuts any opportunity for our boasting. You have nothing to add to your salvation. It completely undercuts our boasting and it completely highlights the utter graciousness of grace. It makes you recognize that God's grace is so much greater than you believed previously. You contribute nothing to your salvation except what? The sin that makes it necessary. That's all that you do is sin. God gets all of the glory. God gets all of the credit. God is the one who boasts, not you. Even your faith is a gift from God empowered by the new nature when you, uh, that you receive when you're born again. So this should produce myriad responses in your heart if you actually understand what this is saying here. It should produce humility as you recognize how desperately you are in need. It should produce gratitude as you understand how deeply you're loved. It should produce confidence as you realize that your salvation is secure in the sovereign hand of God. If you didn't begin this, then you can't end this. And all of those things should lead to worship. So this little point of this digression, this discussion of Greek grammar is not so that you'll have a linguistic uh, bit of trivia to impress your friends, but rather so that you would marvel at God's mercy to save you apart from anything that you have contributed. Let's keep going. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, last phrase, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We've seen something like this a number of times in 1 John, those who truly love God, love the children of God. By the way, uh, that phrase, whoever has been born of him that you see in the latter uh, part of the, uh, of the passage isn't referring to Jesus, the son of God, but rather those who have been reborn and adopted as sons and daughters of God. So when it says, uh, whoever has been born of him, we're talking about sons and daughters of God, the body and bride of Christ, the church. A couple of weeks ago, Zach was talking about this, and he used uh, an illustration of Jared and Claudia's son, Harvey, and he made fun of Harvey's size. He's a, he's a large, he has a much girth, and, uh, and so uh, he made fun of Harvey's size, uh, which is really easy to do, right? If taking candy from a baby is easy, how much easier is it to just make fun of a baby, right? They can't fight back, at least not right away, but at his current rate of growth, I think Harvey will be about Zach's size in a couple of months, and then it's a fair fight. But the point of the illustration was that because we love each other on staff, we love each other's kids, right? Even Taylor Brower, we love him, right? It would be really awkward if we didn't love each other's kids, 
right? If we hung out all of the time, if we're sitting around and chatting, and Carl looks at me and says, hey man, I think you're swell. Carl's kind of old, so he uses words like swell. He says, I think you're swell, but I really despise your kids. I'd be like, thanks, Carl. I'm so glad you're our family minister, right? Well, that's the point that John is making here. If you love the father, you'll love the father's kids. Now, that's not new, right? This is something we've talked about over the past two months or so as we've been looking at this uh, test of love. I know that I should love others. You know you should love others. We know that we should love others. So here's my question. Why is this so difficult experientially? That's what I find so frustrating, if I can use that word of Scripture, and that's not blasphemous, what I find so frustrating about John's writing. Don't get me wrong, I'm the problem here, but still I find this letter to be annoying at times because rather than really comforting me, I find it super convicting. I know that I should love others, that I should love others generously and selflessly and sacrificially, that was a hard word for me to say, sacrificially, uh, and yet I don't even love my kids to the degree that I should, much less God's children. I feel an overwhelming affection for my children, right? I think they're the cutest kids in the world. I'm super proud of them. I think I would die for them, but sometimes I get annoyed. Sometimes I get frustrated. Sometimes I just want to be left alone. Why is that? So I did what any serious scholar and theologian does to answer the great mysteries of life, I consulted Google, right? Not for actual answers, mind you, but instead to see what does culture say about this? How does the world answer the question, why is it so hard to love others? You know the most common response I found was? In page after page after re- of results, in article after article, I saw this theme emerge that you can't love others until you what? Love yourself, right? You guys have Googled it too. (laughs) You can't love others until you love yourself. Sounds like the title of a really bad 90s pop song, right? And just like I'm sure that song would be really bad, so is the theology that's behind it. In reality, you can't love others because you love yourself. You are the problem. I am too, but mostly you, (laughs) all right? You are the problem. Our failure to love others is not because we don't love ourselves, but because we do. We love ourselves too much. Humanity, by its very nature, in essence, we are narcissists. We're so obsessed with ourselves, so obsessed with our lives, with our wants, with our desires, with our pleasures, with our feelings, with our kingdom, that we're relatively ignorant of those around us, except insofar as they serve our desires, our little kingdom. Even so-called self-hatred is really an example of self-love because all sin is rooted in pride. In fact, the Puritans describe sin as the the self-twisting or turning uh, inward, which is why the greatest commandment is not what culture says, love thyself. You and I have no problem with that whatsoever. The greatest commandment is not to love thyself, it's to love God. And the second is to love others. In other words, to have our gaze redirected from ourselves onto others. To have our gaze redirected from being inward focused to being outward focused. That's what 1 John is doing. 
He's helping us see that when a match is struck, there is both light and heat. Likewise, when we're born again, there is both faith and love. Love that is directed upward to God and outward to others. Now, we're almost finished with the relational test of love in 1 John. We've seen that it's cyclical. It comes back over and over again. We'll actually encounter it only one more time next week, actually. And then it doesn't come up again in the book. So before we move on from this relational test, this social test of love, I thought it might be helpful to ask a few diagnostic questions. That if God would be gracious to us this morning, could help lead us to greater repentance and obedience in regards to love for one another. So I want to do a bit of introspection and ask you to do a bit of introspection by asking you to be honest with yourself and ask yourself these questions. So the first question, do you regularly sacrifice your own wants and desires for others? Do you regularly sacrifice your own wants and desires for others? Love is not only, nor is it even primarily an emotion but instead a disposition of the heart that's grounded in humility and overflowing in acts of service for others. Consider how love is exemplified in Scripture. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing, that's convicting, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant, not as significant as yourself, but more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Romans 15, two through three, let each of us uh, please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So how are you doing here? Does this mark your life? Do you regularly, do you eagerly, do you willingly, do you sacrificially love others? Not just yourself, not just those in your immediate family, not just those that you really like, but the church, brothers and sisters. Second question, are you walking in deep fellowship with others such that you make your own weaknesses and needs known and are aware of the weaknesses and needs of others? We've said before, as we talked about love, we've said that love involves doing what is best for others even when it costs you. And that assumes that you actually know what others need, that you know what they need physically, that you know what they need emotionally, that you know what they need spiritually. So are you accountable to others? Uh, Are they accountable to you? Are you content with superficial and shallow relationships? Do you hide your struggles and needs? By the way, I can't tell you how many times I'll hear that someone has been wrestling with some deep physical or emotional or spiritual pain and they'll say, I didn't want to let anyone know because I didn't want to be a burden. That's not humility. That's not love. That's not kind. That's pride. Are you walking in the light with your pain and sorrows and struggles? Are you walking in such a way that you know the other, uh, you know the pain and sorrows and struggles of others? And the third question, it's in two parts. The first one, do you want to love others? I think you're gonna fail the other two tests. I think that's just, if we're being honest, I think we're gonna fail those. And so I think there's great comfort in saying, I at least want this. I think that's a sign of new birth. I think that's a sign of regeneration, that you at least want to love others regularly and sacrificially. 
So do you want to love others? But then a follow-up question, why do you want to love others? Why? Is it to fill a void in your own life? Is it because you think that that will earn God's favor? Do you love others so that God will love you? Or do you love because you've already been loved? Do you love because you are compelled by shame or guilt or insecurity? Or because you're filled with love and hope and grace? This last question is super important given that this book is intended as a single letter. It's not intended to be broken up where you just do one verse at a time. It's intended as a single letter. So it's always a bit dangerous when we read one passage apart from the context of the whole. In other words, we can't apply the truths of chapter five without the context of chapter four and so forth. So I wanna end uh, our sermon this morning by simply reminding us of the context of the book giving us the fuel, giving us the motivation, giving us the rationale for our obedience to the command to love others so that we would keep this in mind and that this might reshape and reorient our minds around these truths. And this might be what actually fuels and empowers our pursuit of love for others. 1 John 4.10 says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The next verse, 1 John 4, 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So believe in Christ. Yes and amen. That's an application of our text this morning, that we believe that Jesus is the king who has come to make the world right. And yet we would only do this, we would only believe That only comes about by virtue of God's grace and regeneration. We believe because we are born again and made willing to believe. Apart from regeneration, your only response to the gospel is disdain. So God has overcome your resistance. Praise Christ and love one another. Yes and amen. That's an application of our text this morning. And yet that only comes about as we bask in the love of a gracious and good father who has loved us and done what is best for us by giving us life and joy in his son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the gift of scripture. I thank you for the gift of your son that he would Uh, come and that he would live a perfect life and that he would die a death that we deserved to die. And I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as a church and to sit under your word. And yet I confess all of these things would mean nothing to us apart from the work of regeneration that you have made us willing to believe upon your son, to see and embrace and to love and to treasure scripture and so I pray that you would use your spirit the spirit that has regenerated us to also empower us to be obedient and that our lives might be marked more and more by love that when people would see Parkway they would see not just a church that is passionate for truth although we are but we would also see a church that is passionate for holiness passionate for morality not legalism but true morality and also a church that is passionate 
for love, that we might love one another, and that might be the marks that would define us. We pray these things with hope and expectation, knowing that you accomplish what you have called us to do. And so we pray all this with, in Christ's name, amen.